don't know. We could get to we could get to more important things like what are the and as I will always my bugabear is always going to be were the orcs the oppressed peoples in Lord of the Rings and I think they were. I'm just saying. I mean, it's a really tragic case. If I'm being honest, so Aragorn was actually an imperialist. Oh, is that I, what you're saying? I, I'm just saying, Aragorn. Um, I forget who the name of that uh, the horse king is, but yeah, Theoden. Theoden, exactly. I Theoden runs the hill people off his land. What what right does he to run the people off his land? I'm just saying. That's true, and Saruman exploited that he very did. well. I might add. Those were the populists. Those were the populists before populists were populists. The hill so Saruman people. is Trump. Is what you're saying? I would I, I would neither confirm nor deny. And that... I mean, clearly no, cool. extrapolating out Sauron. Oh Putin. no, yeah, that's right. I, so, I mixed those um, two up. Yeah, and they're clearly uh, colluding together via the plant here. So yeah. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Orientalist Express podcast. This is the show that brings together young professionals from all over the world to discuss topics related to the Middle East, American foreign policy, and international relations. The goal of this project is to make American foreign policy easier to understand for people who don't normally follow it too closely. I am Nicholas Hayen, the founder of the Orientalist Express blog and website. Joining us today in the virtual studio are a few of our usual contributors. We have Stephen Howard, Sabakir, Matthew Spencer Kosil. And Valida Asmatova. Hey guys! Be sure to check out the official Orientalist Express website at orientalistexpress.com to read more about the team. As the Arab Spring unfolded throughout 2011 and 2012, the United States found itself in a difficult position. Many of the nations that saw political protests, like Egypt and Saudi Arabia, were critical allies and partners in the region. On the one hand, protesters were demanding more political freedom and expanded human rights protections values that the United States has often tried to promote throughout the world. But these protests often threatened the regimes with which America had partnered, and supporting these protests often came at the expense of regional security and economic partnerships. Cases like the Libyan intervention against Muammar Gaddafi and the Syrian intervention against Bashar al-Assad seemed to be an easier calculation, since these were traditionally hostile against the United States in the first place. But as we have seen, such interventions seem to have only destabilized the region further, and in some cases prolonged the conflicts, thus increasing the problems of stability and human rights that America sought to prevent in the first place. With all of this in mind, what should be the responsibility of the United States when a dictatorship experiences massive civil unrest? What measures should be taken when the threat or opportunity, depending on your perspective, presents itself? So I will start off by saying I don't think that the United States has a obligation to really intervene in a civil conflict, whether it be for a dictatorship or any other country across the world. A civil conflict is a domestic event, and it is first and foremost a a local event. So I mean, yeah, if, if it was happening in, say, Mexico or Canada, yeah, we have a role in there, but it's happening halfway across the world. I don't think there is a a necessity for the United States to go in there. But that being said, the United States has to really uh, understand that it is not the power it once was in the world. And so to pull off a good strategy to make our 
I guess, achieve our interests in the world, we have to play kind of opportunistically. And that's going to have to include um, whenever there's a civil conflict, civil unrest, it's the... I don't want to be too glib about it, but I mean, the best time to change things is during uh, massive unrest, massive chaos, whatever you want to put it as. And if the United States sees that or believes that they can make a large change at that point, I believe they should intervene. Uh, the method of intervening is should be case-specific. And I know that... So, for the listeners, uh, we kind of had a conversation about this a while ago because uh, I'd seen something basically and said, ah, the Syrian conflict's dead. I mean, they're being let back into the Arab League. They're being, they have reestablished uh, all these uh, diplomatic ties again. It's the, the Syrian revolution's gone. That led to Matt basically asking, well, you know, what could we have done differently? What could we really have done to help the revolution or uh, he didn't say help the revolution obviously i'm not trying to put words in your mouth sorry sir but uh what could we have done differently and that led me to say well what could we do differently with all these sort of fights because in syria i believe that we could have gone in there we could have used military force at the very outset and i don't believe that that really would have led to a situation where you really have libya going on again and that's the two cases, and you use military intervention, you get kind of a Libya. You don't use military intervention, you get kind of a uh, um, Yemen sort of situation. And from the U.S. perspective, of course, other people will use military force, but what happens if the U.S. uses military force? I think that it's in the U.S. interest to be very opportunistic, basically, and use military force if need be, to use diplomatic pressure if need be, but... If we are going to intervene in these civil conflicts, more often than not, it's going to be military force. Uh, I just finished reading a book on uh, the future of uh, the history of the future of warfare by Lawrence Friedman, and one of the studies that he points out is a kind of a depressing study, saying that in times of civil conflict, countries that achieve, I guess, uh, stasis diplomatically or politically. I think it was 66% of the time go back to a civil unrest in 10 years later or so, while countries that are just basically the one, one side or the other is militarily put down in a very hard way, that's 40% of the time or 50% of the time. So it's more often than not, you actually stabilize something if you use overwhelming military power. Yeah, and so, sorry, uh, so Stephen, I guess what you're saying too is in the cases where we do need to intervene, it has to be all or nothing, essentially, right? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a very good way of putting it. Uh, you can't have a even Iraq was a halfway. I mean, we thought we could just go in there, uh, bring down Saddam, and hooray, we're done. We don't need any. We don't need to listen to Eric Shinseki. Shinseki. I mean, God, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Massive occupation force? No way. No, you, you're going to have to have a long term and a costly plan if you want to do this stuff. Yeah, you you brought up really good points, Stephen. Like um, yesterday when I was just kind of brushing up the topic again, I was interested to see what um, Russians have to say with this and everything. And basically, they translate humanitarian intervention as regime change. And I mean, based on our history and everything, it's no surprise that they would define that 
term that way because I feel like if a country is responsible to react to a certain issue, then I believe that it's responsible to rebuild it as well. And I feel like these dimensions have been um, neglected in the traditional humanitarian intervention debate. So I feel like if we bring those definitions back center stage, we can just define the concept a little bit more better. And um, as for Russia and China, I mean, they've been historically reluctant to support any form of intervention. And the reason for that is because they're worried that uh, this would create a precedent for the international community to have a say in how they treat their own, you know, restrict their own minority populations. I think that um, the willingness to use armed force is not just influenced by um, the desperation of the affected population, by all, but we also have to consider like geopolitical factors, the relevance of the country to the world community, regional stability, and of course the attitudes and um, goals of other major players. Um, I remember Madeleine Albright, she visited our school, South Dakota State University, so shout out to our school, in 2015, and one of her, um, a question was, what, what was one of your biggest regrets in your career? And she basically sa- stated that when she gave a, uh, when she stated that um, in 1996, when the UN acknowledged that the U.S.-driven sanctions on Iraq had led to the death of half a million children. She said, well, it was a hard choice, but the price the price was worth it. So basically, she, uh, she stated that it was acceptable to allow half a million of children to die in order to maintain that strangulation of Iraq. So she regrets all those words uh, to this day, and she stated that there should be more... Um, things to consider before uh, doing a military intervention. So basically, like, pressure diplomacy or um, any other tools, and we should leave that as our last resort. And it's really hard to just define when can we interfere and when can we not. We don't really have, like, criterias uh, defined by the U.S. um, before we interfere in another country. So I think that... First and foremost, military intervention should defend national security interests. You know, the president and Congress, they have to recognize that not all national interests are equally important. You know, there's national interests that um, might not require military intervention at all. Secondly, I think that military intervention should not jeopardize the ability of the U.S. to meet more important security commitments, you know. Um, the current national military strategy is bankrupt, so it has to consider different factors into that. And then thirdly, I think that military intervention should um, achieve the military goals that are clearly defined and attainable and hopefully sustainable. I mean, this is the part where it becomes a bit tricky because we can't really um, predict which military goals can be, you know, figured out in the end, the objectives and stuff. So I guess maybe if we just figure out all those three criterias, maybe then it'll be a bit easier for us. I, I definitely agree with you. I actually, I really like the kind of the the layout that you have for the criterion for intervening. I'm just worried that 
I we've we've talked about this before, but how would you be able to tell what's actually in the national security interest or in the uh, defense of the country? Because I, I think you can make a good argument that, say, flipping Syria, if you had been able to do that, would have been in the major interest of a lot of the world, and I, I don't think a lot of people would agree with me. Oh, I mean, I definitely understand that finding that reliable criteria for deciding when, where, and why to intervene is de- very difficult, you know, by several factors. First, because there is the character of this new world disorder. Like, it's unpredictable. These, this international arena doesn't have a strategic clarity. Like, we can't really define it. But then, on the other hand, we can clearly define, like, any danger, um, or like lesser threats kind of like balancing that out um let's say let's take bosnia for example it's clearly uh it was clearly a problem of europe but um the reason is that this problem threatened but did not overwhelm the continent if that makes sense it needed attention but not the same sort of military attention given by america to europe you know so sometimes maybe it's easier to let the neighboring countries or that region to interfere and decide what to do if that makes sense yeah and i think that um i think that realism really dictates exactly when we would intervene and it would depend on our relationship with whatever nation is is having that regional conflict. I mean, let's say, for instance, there's a major uprising in China, and it looks like it could go either way. Um, and this uprising is promising cooperation with the United States. You know, they're going to halt their theft of intellectual property. They're going to stop their cyber attacks. They're going to work within the existing uh, world order. Um, that would be a more compelling choice for the United States to try to decide which side do we support. But even in that case, it probably still wouldn't happen just because of the massive economic uh, prowess that China has and the fact that if it were to, you know, be upended, that would be a major economic uh, destabilization factor for everyone. Um, So there's there's instances where it's a lot easier, you know, like like Libya, that on the face of it was a pretty easy choice, right? This evil dictator that everybody hated. uh, Yeah, okay, sure. Easy to to kick him out and and kind of move on from there. But again, even in that case, we saw a massive destabilization of Northern Africa as a result. So um, I don't know. Personally, I'm a little bit wary of of any intervention now, except for in the most extreme conditions, and only if it's backed up by every other player on the world stage. I don't think you'll ever get another intervention that's backed up by every player on the world stage. There's too many diverging interests. True, true. But I mean... I should say the vast majority. I mean, there's always going to be a holdout. Russia will always push back against any intervention if they can see it's in their interest. Same with China, uh, understandably so. But if you can get the vast majority of everyone else behind you, then it's at least a little bit more feasible. Well, it's interesting to think about how um, Russia is very territorial, and that's the first. That's kind of the first line of thinking you need to have. Um, in the back of your head when you're thinking about when will Russia oppose an intervention and you just have to think about their territorial interests, of course. One thing to think about is you mentioned Libya. Libya had a huge rail project Russia was invested in under Gaddafi. Um, After our intervention in Libya, that rail project ended. It's just barely restarting now. Um, 
it's also important just to see that when we talk about different situations, whether it's Libya, Yemen, or Syria, how completely differently they've manifested. Libya right now, it's not... The, vi the scale of violence there is dramatically lower compared to Syria and Yemen. And one of the reasons maybe for their stability in Libya is that they do appear to have basically two functioning governments in Libya, more or less. And that's kind of important because in terms of the monopoly on force and security in the region, if you look at a country like Libya, the eastern half of Libya is more or less dominated by the interests of one um, overarching security force run by Haftar versus the uh, western side of Libya, the Tripoli side of Libya. There is a lot of competing interests amongst militias. There's just not necessarily a powerful enough strongman in that, that part of Libya to actually contain the militias, make the militias work with each other peacefully and prevent the infighting and the clashes. So if we're looking at the stability of these countries, um, it's important to look at... It, it's really hard to compare Libya and Syria. One of the things I'm kind of worried about is how we're kind of... We're basically defining any intervention out of U.S. interest, and I'm I'm not sure that's a good idea. I know that we have had... I, I don't think we have the resources right now to... Uh, intervene in things like Syria and in uh, many other places, but when we leave these uh, kind of uprisings or civil unrest to local forces, those local forces are almost always, if you look at the world today and you take a, uh, like a scale of world leaders in every country or in every continent and you kind of try to find the most powerful ones that will be able to intervene, it's more than likely the United States or a uh, I don't want to how do I want to say this uh, country that we might not want to have more influence. It might be Russia. It might be I hey Brazil's not on the happy list right now either, really. But there are a lot of countries out there that with the ability to intervene now are countries you don't really want intervening. So if we do not intervene, we also have to consider the impact of not intervening we didn't intervene in syria so syria is still a russian i guess uh i don't want to say a uh surf but they are definitely a under under russia's thumb a bit and I, I i also don't think that we should really define these countries as within these other states spheres of influence quite yet i mean i do believe and everyone will know that i believe that we are moving to a spheres of influence sort of world but i'm not sure we're there right now i don't know if we just need to look at the world right now and say ah well that's within russia's territorial sphere of influence that's within china's territorial sphere of influence vietnam belarus neither of those countries entrust us anymore yeah and i i mean i wouldn't say that we're in a sphere of influence uh type of world just yet but i can i can agree that we're definitely heading there um i guess my thought is, you know, you, you criticize that we're discussing all of this in the terms of U.S. interests, which, I mean, of course we are, right? Because it's the United States who is thinking about this sort of thing. Of course, we're going to put our interests first. Um, but I wonder if, if maybe you're right. Maybe we should think of this in terms of just global stability. 
So what would be more stable for the world as a whole? What would essentially reduce the likelihood of global conflict, of mass casualties? And if sometimes that means that the United States just has to step back and say, okay, I guess another country is just going to move in here, and but it will be stable, and there will be fewer mass casualties, there will be no genocide if this country, even if we don't agree with them, if they move in and secure that situation, is that not potentially a better option for the world, if not at least just for the United States? Well, I might have misspoken then, because my, my point was actually the exact opposite of what you were saying there. My point is that the United States should be looking out for its own interests in the world, and that I believe that the global interests of immediate stability are being a little bit overemphasized. So that's... I, I might have misspoken. I apologize about that. So you think that we should pursue more... I don't want to say I don't want to put words in your mouth and say reckless, but policies that would benefit the United States, even if it means that the world as a whole might be a little bit less stable, a little bit less safe because of it. So I believe that we should be opportunistically um, aggressive, and that's not going to be everything. We can't be everywhere at once. We can't do everything at once. But we do have the power to change the courses of multiple civil conflicts going on at any point in time. And I believe we should use that power to influence the, I guess, movement of events. Because, And you can call me, uh, call me whatever you want to call me. I do believe that the United States model of thinking, the United States model of government, etc., etc., is probably the best one for the world. And it is probably the one that's going to lead to the most long-term security. And so what I'm concerned more with overall is long-term security. You have a lot of short-term security from, and even mid-term security from dictatorships. But dictatorships are never going to give you long-term security. That's why we got away from the monarchical system. Because you never know which dictator is going to be next, what he's going to do, if it's going to be a Bashar al-Assad or if it's going to be a Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Well... But in democracy, you don't know if you're going to have a Hillary Clinton or a Donald Trump. Sure, but you can also say that that, but those are going to be redressed pretty quickly, won't they? Or at, at least well, more than more theory. than likely. I mean, um, I guess. I mean, there is something to be said about um, even looking at Iraq. It's somewhat more democratic, certainly more democratic than it was under Saddam, and it's starting to stabilize. But I mean, albeit after almost 15 years of conflict. Um, I guess my thought would be, Stephen, or anyone else who wants to answer this, if, say, Iran had another major like green revolution and suddenly it really looked like that regime is about to fall, um, would you think that the United States should step in and give its wholehearted support for this uh, uprising? I mean, you got... Yeah, so, so I, that's what I'm saying. You have to be really opportunistic about it. I don't believe that the United States is in a current position with its leadership and with its military spending and with its domestic unrest to be able to intervene in a country right now. Um, Even for Iran, where, I mean, they've made it, they've made no surprise that they want regime change. Sure. And that's, I'm also not 100% confident that any type of uh, regime change in Iran would be the uh, best way to go. I'm just, I don't believe that Iran has a dictatorship in the sense that we're talking about the Saddam dictatorship or the Al-Assad dictatorship, I believe Iran can... Iran has a, a basic parliamentary system and a basic 
democratic system that's overseen by obviously the mullahs but i i believe that there's more ability and opportunity for internal liberalization there than there is in a dictatorship where there is zero opportunity for internal liberalization and yeah that's a fair point i but yeah i i, I guess i wouldn't have i would not advise us in our current position to intervene in iran if circumstances were different maybe uh we could have a it would be a different uh conclusion that i came to and that's that's really where i want to come from with we need to be opportunistic about this if we have the ability to and it looks like the odds are in our favor and we actually think it out right before we go in then we should do it we do need to act fast circumstances change very fast we can see that in syria if we had acted uh what is it now eight years ago then i think the circumstances would have been very different in syria but it's not the case anymore you you bring up opportunism and i think it's really important to understand how many different layers are required for opportunity because um unfortunately when we use the realism mindset we forget that sometimes there's certain behaviors that are popular and some behaviors are unpopular and a lot of the reasons for uh well for lack of a better term indecisiveness by a regime uh, if the regime is a liberal democracy, is there could be political gridlock. So in order to, you know, it, it, it's it's a little bit, you know, unfair for liberal democracies, but, you know, you might be a liberal democratic regime in a Western country, and you might think this is the perfect time to do something strategically, but it might not be the perfect time politically. So that's that's probably the best way to understand perhaps why Syria did not go as well as we may have wanted as a country. Um, I think, for example, under Obama, we were just a little too careful. And there could have been a lot of reasons behind it. You know, we didn't necessarily have perfect intelligence, um, as well as dealing with um, just uh, domestic politics in the U.S., but I'd like to read a quote from Obama, and you could tell me how decisive that seems when it comes to intervention in Syria. And um, Obama said this, uh, Barack Obama, 3rd of December 2012, I want to make it absolutely clear to Assad and those under his command, the world is watching, the use of chemical weapons is and would be totally unacceptable, and if you make the tragic mistake of using these weapons, there will be consequences, and you will be held... <laughs> the famous red line. Period. Uh... That's the famous red line. And one of the problems with the red line is, what does it mean? You know, um, some of us on the Orientalist Express podcast have children. And uh, those children are old enough, some of them, to receive verbal commands about what to do and what not to do. And um, if I told Henry, my wonderful four-year-old son, that there are consequences for doing something, that's not going to stop him because doesn't know what consequences are. You have to be very clear, you know, that when you do this, there will be a consequence. Like, you will go to timeout when you commit this um, <laughs> terrible action. I do think it's really Poison. funny that you're comparing... You're going to go to timeout if you commit this terrible action. We're talking about civil unrest and chemical weapons here. <laughs> but this is important, is that you need to, to make it very clear. 
Uh, imagine if the police told you there will be consequences if you use these, you know, sure, but weapons, you know, and you will hear about those and you'll be held accountable. As opposed to the police saying, you know, I'm going to arrest you if you pull that. But thing I think out. that was kind of part of the strategy of the red line, right? Is that President Obama did not want to intervene. He did not want to do anything in Syria, and so he was really hardcore bluffing when he said that, and that's why he didn't say any concrete measures. So who's the message for? When you make that red line, that must not have been a message for Assad, since that's not. No, I think it was, but it was a bluff. It was a it was a hundred percent a bluff. He wasn't going to do anything, and Assad called it. Yeah, Matt, to take your uh, to take your child rearing uh, example, um, my child's only seven months old, so she can't really understand any of this right now. But I think what uh, I think what Obama was trying to do is sort of that you know the countdown from three, and then you know three, two, don't make me get to one, and then you know the kids they they usually always stop before one. You don't ever know what's going to happen at one. Even the parent sometimes is like, I'm not really sure what I'm going to do, but please don't push me to that point. And, you know, in this case, of course, Assad did. And turns out the response was practically nothing. So that's the, that's kind of the, the calculus there is you need to actually have something that you're ready and willing to do. Um, even if you do have a, a red line, you have to back it up with something, even if you don't actually want to back it up. Otherwise, it's meaningless. Well, and it, again, just like parenting, if if the mother wants you to discipline, but the father doesn't really want to discipline, then you're not going to get discipline happening. You know, if if my wife said no cookies before dinner, and I said I, I don't know, I don't really want to be involved in this, telling my kid not to eat cookies, well, he's probably going to try and eat some cookies. And the problem with uh, Syria was that a lot of our allies didn't automatically want to be on board with Syria intervention. So that made it a lot harder to establish a red line. We like to do things as a united front. I'm not sure that's exactly true, though. There was a lot of... There was a lot more support in the... uh, I know that in the Commons they had the vote, which was... That was an incredibly politically stupid vote. More people wanted that intervention, but they just didn't want the same type of intervention, blah, blah, blah. But I think there was more enthusiasm for intervention in Europe than there was in the United States. I think this was straight up the United States not wanting to do it. Well, it wouldn't be the first time that the Brits held a vote that they shouldn't have had, because uh, then it just kind of screwed their policy options. That was, You know, that, that could be said for a lot of British things. They had a vote they shouldn't have had. I kind of want to go back to um, Stephen's remark about opportunistic. Like, I agree with Matthew that there are several layers to that. I mean, are we talking about if national interests are threatened or is the U.S. going to clearly win in this particular situation? Or is there enough reasonable assurance that, you know, intervention will be supported by uh, the American people and Congress? We never know that. And while, Stephen, I admire um, your commitment to the American model and praising it, I'm not sure that that model might exactly work in every single country, you know. And while we do would hope for something like that, every country is different in its own way. And I just feel like when we do interfere, what happens afterwards, you know? who Who, who is this mess all left to afterwards to rebuild? This is what really upsets me when it comes to military intervention is that, yes, we do interfere, and yes, maybe there's some sort of help, but 
what happens afterwards you know what's the end story for that or it's all going to just happen in a full circle again if nothing is left to rebuild you know a new government and such um i think if we look into like several central asian countries for example where it's not necessarily democratic per se as america but you know they're still working on their own you know they've been independent quote-unquote, and they've been working on their own, trying to improve their constitution, trying to democratize and such. And it's been going so far, you know, fine. No, um, no military. But not too fast. Yeah, not too, not fast. too fast. Exactly. Fast. <laughs> yeah. If they do it too fast, they'll worry about domestic issues. And if they do it too fast, they will worry about Russian intervention. Right, right. So at their own pace, you know, slow and steady, but they're clearly going towards something. There, there hasn't been much. It's something. It's something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's something. Yeah. Sure. So I, uh, real quick, I think that we're talking a little bit about uh, different things. And when I say that we're intervening opportunistically, opportunistically is a very big and vague category that incur- it, it encompasses a lot of different factors. And we, we have to weigh those factors, and that's something I definitely think we should do. But we're also, I don't think we should be applying this to every country under the sun that might happen to be like in a liberal democracy. I don't think that we should be applying this to like Turkey and whatnot. This is stuff for major... Sorry, I just lost my train of thought because my cat attacked me. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, major uh, dictatorships. So, say North Korea. If there is a, if we get to a point where opportunistically it is feasible to go into North Korea and depose Kim Jong Un, and we should probably take it. And that's why I say it. It opportunistically, it's I mean, you have to get rid of the artillery somehow which is the first country that came to mind i have no idea how you can do that probably never going to happen but if for some reason ever all the stars lined up and there was a way to depose the kim jong uh kim regime without artillery blasting seoul that's probably something we should take yeah i mean on the uh on the theoretical side of it, of course. Um, but actually, that does bring up a good point because I did kind of want to discuss just briefly, like, the, so the nuclear option, right? So, like, if a nuclear armed nation has civil unrest, is there really anything the United States can or should do? I mean, should we just prioritize nuclear security over anything else? Because uh, the last thing we, of course, want to see is, you know, some rogue uh, civil, you know, uprising getting a hold of these nuclear weapons, even if they're ones that supposedly are America-friendly, uh, that could really be a major problem for global security. Should we, should we make it clear that nuclear weapons are just unacceptable to use in a civil conflict on either side? Oh, definitely. I, yeah, yeah, I think that you answered your own question, Nick, because that gets into existential high politics, and nuclear politics is totally different from the other set of politics um, that come to deciding whether or not we intervene or how international relations work just because that's a scale that's entirely different. Um, Unless any other weapon could have uh, global catastrophic consequences, but right now it's mostly just nuclear. Or really, I suppose you could say anybody with an ICBM, I mean, you... Which is most nuclear... Well, I guess you you could put, like, chemical weapons and biological weapons into that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, if you can put, if you could put something biological on the same, um, 
rocket that has the capacity. Yeah, if you have basically international nuclear threatening capability, uh, whatever you put in that warhead, if it's nuclear or otherwise, I suppose that's the bigger problem. But that also is different, again, because to be a nuclear power involves a certain level of thinking about, like, you know, playing like civilization takes a certain level of, like, tech credits, if you would, uh, that aren't really possible in a really, really broken down... North uh, Korea disagrees with you. <laughs> or anarchic, yeah, I know you said. <laughs> well, they're not, but they're not a weak, they're not, they're not, they're not a, uh, they're not a chaotic, anarchic situation. Uh, and so I guess what I'm saying is, again, this is why it's so different, is that a lot of these countries that have internal um, instability, I don't, I mean, they're not nuclear. It's like nuclear countries are more stable. So maybe you can make a best of argument. We should just nuclear arm everybody. And I'm sure that's been a lot of... Uh, hey, well, okay, that's, that. that's the thing now, is they're not, they're stable, but what if they're not, like North Korea? What, I mean, does that mean that all nuclear not, armed I mean, nations are just off the table for intervention? That's a hell of a counterfactual, though, because I guess you could say that maybe those countries in the Middle East are unstable because they okay, don't have but... nuclear bombs. And uh, not to Middle Easternize uh, Asia in any way, but how stable would India and Pakistan be if they did not have but nuclear bombs to force each other to... I think that, to... That's, the, that's the perfect example right there, though, is Pakistan. Pakistan is not incredibly stable. That is a country with a very real risk, and that's why the United States has been involved in Pakistan for such a long time, because they have a very real risk of breaking down and they also have nuclear weapons. So I think that we could tur turn a scenario on its head, make it Pakistan. I think we have a really we have a real discussion here. Well, we put billions and billions of dollars into Pakistan to make sure that that sort of I, mean, I think it's just simply put is it's kind of like saying what would happen if a country was unstable and there was no external intervention? What if ISIS just took over an aircraft carrier? Well, that can't happen because think about how many people you need to make an aircraft carrier do anything. It's the same thing with a nuclear missile. You know, I think that it's silly to think that it's just one guy with a button because obviously you need a team of technicians and scientists to do anything with a high-technology weapon or hardware. So, stability... Nuclear arms are more like a function of stability. It, it's it's not something that can necessarily be easily used by just any any random militia. So I, I agree with you that you need to achieve a level of stability at the time to build nuclear weapons, but it's exactly what we're getting back to with dictatorships. And Pakistan was a dictatorship for a while. Um, Iran... Had basically, you could say, is a dictatorship. I know that I said they had democracy. They're kind of a dictatorship. I mean, I think they're more of a democracy. But these are countries which can achieve midterm or uh, near-term stability to be able to create these nuclear weapons with having a very real chance of having long-term instability. There is no guarantee out there that Pakistan is going to be stable in 10 years. I think if we were to make a bet right now and say, which country out there will be super stable within 10 or 20 years, no one's going to put down money on Pakistan because you don't know what's going to happen. And that's the same with Iran even. I mean, what if Iran was to have made nuclear weapons and then something happens? There's another green revolution. You can't predict those things. I don't, I don't think that a new... I don't think 
an unstable state can resort to using nuclear but arms why? unless you know because of it well because a state a, a, a frightened state a scared state and a desperate state might use it wouldn't that be a state in, in a I state don't... of civil war though say if there was a green revolution that actually yeah. turned into a civil war in iran or pakistan destabilized but that would mean you have i think that means you would have let's just say an opposition force but then you still have a regime force that had it together to be able to use its full Sure, force. but those nuclear weapons are going to be scattered around the country, especially in Pakistan, where we don't even know where their nuclear weapons are. They don't tell us where their nukes are. And they didn't even know Osama bin Laden was, what, one mile from their main military, their West Point? I mean, we're not, we're not talking about point. countries that have perfect domestic surveillance or... I'm not even sure they always know where their own things are. They don't know even know where their nukes are all the time. I'm I I would assume. I'm just I guess I'm just saying is uh, the majority of the violence that we see in a lot of um, countries that are being torn apart by militias are, you know, at the militia level. And I just I think that we do need to feel a little more assured to know that a singular militia cannot possibly commandeer a nuclear warhead so i don't think we have to worry sure we, and we i don't have to worry more I'm about sorry. actual regimes nuclear regimes uh panicking and doing something irrational not necessarily four dudes with a truck <laughs> i don't know i just it's not four dudes with a truck though in so many cases i mean it's no. and and this doesn't even mean that like Sure. Okay. Let's say in Pakistan is a good example. Let's say that because um, there is some offshoots of ISIS in Pakistan, if they were to, um, you know, gain a lot more followers and they were to get a lot more powerful, I mean, it wouldn't take much to, to at least commandeer something and to even steal not necessarily the warhead, but even just the nuclear material itself or you know something to that effect. I mean, these are. Yeah. These are assets. That... And that's why the fear of the dirty bomb was a big deal some 10, 15 yeah, years ago. Yeah, these are assets that Cause... are extremely dangerous and that are not quite that yeah. difficult to, to pull off. I mean, in the case of, like, Pakistan, what, do they, they pretty much just bought their nuclear weapons for the most part. So, I mean, there are nations that are able to um, to pull it off, even if they're not the most stable and they're not the most, um, you know, that they have that high risk of, you know, of civil unrest. And we got to also remember that we're talking about countries here. I mean, in the entire world, nuclear weapons have been a thing since 1945. These are not new things. Yeah, we're not talking probably about fission bomb, hyper whatever nuclear weapons that are going out there. I'm, I'm not up to the jargon on all those nuclear weapons, but it's not going to be difficult to pull off a nuclear weapon of some type. I mean, dirty bomb or maybe even just a regular nuclear weapon from who knows when, but it's, it can't be that difficult anymore. It's not that difficult anymore. So then, so then do we intervene? I mean, in the case of Pakistan, do we, you know, we see that some nefarious actor, maybe not ISIS, because ISIS is just such an obvious example we would have to, but, you know, someone a little bit less worse, do we just pour our forces in and try to back that regime? Obviously, India probably wouldn't like it much, but you know, is that the choice we have to make? Uh, Matt's 100% right, though. That's but you still have to do something, but your priorities are just 100% different. 
I mean, when nuclear weapons are involved, Matt, you are 100% right. There's the calculus is completely different. It's very different, and you're going to get pretty much a level of involvement from so many powerful countries that I guess that goes down into the intervention that we're talking about, because I think with the nuclear weapons, we're dealing way too much with counterfactuals right now. What we're trying to think about is countries like Syria or Libya or Yemen, countries that they don't have anything near to, you know, nuclear status, which we don't have to worry about. Um, but what's great about those nuclear weapons is they demand a balanced intervention from the global community. And when we're looking at countries that are unstable in the Near East, Near East, I think the issue is if we're wanting to think about when is it in our interest to intervene or not, we have to think about who else is intervening. So, for example, uh, there's a big difference between Libya, where really there's not too many great powers uh, intervening in Libya, versus who's intervening in Yemen, and well, with Saudi Arabia, versus who's intervening in Syria, which is, well, it's Russia, plus a while back a few other countries. Um, so it's important to see who else is intervening. We might have a policy of saying we're not going to intervene in a country just because it's having a political problem. We should only intervene maybe if it's a very bad humanitarian crisis. But what if, for example, it's not exactly the world's worst humanitarian crisis, but there's some violence like Ukraine. But what if it's another country intervening in that country? Well, then we're talking about sovereignty. So maybe we need to think about the sovereignty of a country when we think about intervention. Sorry to push away from the nuclear thing. I just felt like it was a little counterfactual to some of the other things we were discussing. But that's my two cents. It's who else is intervening. It's if no one else is intervening in a country, then whether or not we intervene, you know, we we could we kind of have some luxury of time and energy to think about it. But if another country's intervening in a country we're thinking about, then we need to consider Yeah, you know, I, I agree. Yeah, go ahead. Please. Oh, well, I was just going to say that even like the General Assembly resolution re reiterates that, you know, sovereignty, territorial integrity and national unity of states must be fully respected with the charter of the UN. And that even makes it difficult to operate in situations where the affected country can deny access. So I feel like in such cases, uh, maybe the United States can, uh, you know, rest back a little bit and the role of region actors and the neighbors will become critical. That's my two cents. <laughs> yeah, I agree. That's that's a huge consideration. And again, Matt, I mean, I know it's counterfactual to talk about the nuclear option, but it could happen someday. It's very real. Oh, it could. It's just nice to know that right now nuclear powers are very stable. I mean, unless we get to the point where, for example, in America, Democrats and Republicans decide to have partisan uh, bickering over whether or not uh, or how we deal with a nuclear power that is threatening. Well, as long as people are on the same page. Sure. So that goes back to the layers of different, and I know that both you and Valida hit on this, is the layers of different ability to intervene. And that's, you got to have a good, you have got to have a good plan to do everything. You got to make sure the time is right to intervene. And then you got to make sure that you can actually politically intervene based on what your country is going through. There's a lot of different factors. Yeah, that's that's one of the problems, again, back with realism, is that, you know, sometimes um, this is why democracies can 
promote instability, why democratic peace theory might not necessarily be the best theory, because politicians will do anything to get reelected. And if that means increasing instability, they'll do it. So that needs to be kept in mind outside of obviously, you know, realist concepts of strategy. Well, okay, so you keep saying these realist concepts of strategy. Well, I want to hear you propose a different one. Like, because I, I know, you, what is it? The Copenhagen theory is, I believe, what you like? Am I right about that? No, I'm not. I'm not here to necessarily say that. Um, I'm trying to say that because of democracy, um, you can't really have perfect strategies of intervention because you get a lot of indecisiveness in Western countries. I'm not necessarily saying there's something better than realism. I'm just saying that uh, <laughs> realism is probably the most convenient sort of way to think about things. It's not necessarily that um, for some reason another school of thought is going to be better. Because that's, I, I, that I must have, I, I misinterpreted what you're saying. I just thought that was kind of interesting because you're right. I, no, I'm well, not I was going to say well, you're right that I do can't... think about all these things through very much a prem, uh, a prism of realism. And I don't know how you'd view these sorts of intervention sort of things through different schools of, say, uh, uh, liberalism. I do think you brought up an interesting point with the UN Charter and the uh, territorial sovereignty, and you know, I, 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 I know you brought that up too. The sovereignty of all the different countries, and it's really diff difficult when a, a country could, when Syria goes into haywire, when a uh, Yemen goes into haywire, that's you don't know what comes out of that country. So I, yeah. no, I agree. I mean. There's just so many circumstances. Um, I think some of the ones that you guys mentioned and just kind of, uh, you know, gather all of what you guys talked about. Um, I, I guess we can talk that we can interfere when circumstances such as would be like defending against direct attacks on the U.S. citizens and our allies um, to counter aggression. <laughs> like to defend our key economic interests, preserving, promoting democracy. And of course, we talked about preventing the spread of weapons of uh, mass destruction, terrorism, and international crime, um, maintaining U.S. reliability, and then of course for humanitarian purposes. Um, th that's basically like our attempt to answer why and when the U.S. might conduct a military intervention. But again, like our world is so unpredictable, so we can't really say when to use each. I suppose it's always important to think about what is the right thing to do on a moral level. It's important to think about that. It really is, because you are a Western state. You need to sell the idea to the masses about why you're doing what you're doing. Is it morally right? I mean, if a politician... Well, I guess you could say Donald Trump gets away with this, where he says... Things like, is it good for our country? Does it make us money? Um, as opposed to saying, oh, it's immoral or, or moral to, to intervene in situation XYZ. So, like back with the Khashoggi, um, the Khashoggi murder, uh, it was interesting when he would basically say, well, you know, we can't, we can't yell at Saudi Arabia too much because we need to sell them things and we need to make lots of money. And... The way that he was able to just simply say his interests or what he thought were national interests like that without even a pretense of uh, when to apply morality was absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think we're we're all trying to uh, 
to come at this from somewhat of a moral I perspective. I mean, we disagree in, in the means for that, right? Like, you know, what Stephen and I were saying earlier where I was saying, well, you know, if, if another country is going to intervene and that's going to cause more stability, then maybe that's okay. And Stephen, it sounded like you disagreed and said, long term, we should be thinking that stability. So, you know, we disagree on the morality of it. But yeah, I mean, I do think it's a little bit crazy that president could just so blatantly say well well, it doesn't make us money so we're not going to do it i mean you could there's options to dress that up in a moral fashion and say look we have to sell them weapons in order to maintain the stability and security of the region and that's like a kind of a moralistic argument in some respect yeah that doesn't play well to the fuck your feelings voters though oh yeah that's there you go that's that's taking this podcast to the r-rated level that's why (laughs) Stephen, that's why realism doesn't doesn't. That's why I I had to critique realism for that reason. Is there you go. He's even though he's trying to look like he doesn't care about anything, he does care. You know, he cares about his voters. You know, who's going to vote for him? You know, he knows where his meals are coming from. But I do want to I want to build on your guys's points and just say that. In my very idealistic mindset, America derives its strength from morality, like most liberal democracies who try to impose their will on a global level. Um, this is because it, you know, um, basically moral values have popularity um, with with constituencies. We often vote with our hearts and our feelings, and as such, uh, we derive strength from morality, Uh, especially because if you're simply operating on a set of interests, interests change um, much more rapidly than morals change. So if you don't have that consistency, you are going to have policies changing very quickly. I would I would say that you I don't know. I disagree with that. I think that emotions of the individual person change much more rapidly and much more quixotically than do the stated national interests of a country unless they are espoused by a uh, just off the cuff remark. You're right about that. It's you can't control that and that's kind of crazy. Uh but I know, Valida, you brought up a, it was, what, two podcasts ago that we actually do have a national uh, interest document or a national security document that details kind of the national interests. And if you put that into uh, more of effect of, like, we, we put more focus on it, you have long-running national interests. It is in the uh, national interest of the United States to um, make sure that China does not dominate the East Asian sphere. I mean... That's not going to be an interest that changes anytime soon. Well, no, that's like uh, what I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast is that defining these like national interests is what ser- can serve as a criteria for um, military intervention. For example, like um, what are vital interest? What are our vital national interests? Is it like protecting America's territory border? Are we preventing a major power threat to Europe um, or East Asia? 
are we preventing the hostile interference by an outside power in our Western Hemisphere or ensuring access to foreign trade, you know, and protecting Americans like at home and abroad against threats to their lives and such. I think that is the number one um, step, I think, to defining that criteria is just defining our vital national interests. What are more important to us right now? that's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. I'd like to thank our guests Stephen, Matthew, and Valida for their insight and analysis, as well as our listeners and readers of the blog. Be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com, like and share in our Facebook group, or tweet us at orientalistexp. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.